Jason, you want to pray? Yeah. Pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you for another opportunity to meet and for us to learn more about you, to dig into your word. And uh, Lord, just be with Brian uh, today and also with Grady and, and uh, whoever's preaching this morning, I guess. And uh, Lord, just uh, we thank you for this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. So um, I just kind of thought it would be a good idea, and this will be brief, but just kind of the background to this point um, is that 1 Corinthians is likely the second letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Um, he initially sent one regarding issues that dealt with sexual immorality in the church, and that's mentioned, um, I think, in chapter 5, um, briefly. Uh, and then they responded with questions about marriage, divorce, participation in pagan religions, order uh, within corporate worship, and then, of course, the bodily resurrection of Christians. So that's where we are now, is we're going to be talking about the resurrection. Uh, but just to kind of keep in mind, and I think that this really kind of opened up to me, is that Corinth, Corinth was this kind of, this bridge city, you know, it was on a, it was, it was a very important port city between two major seas. So there was a lot of activity going through the ports. And you had a lot of people with a lot of beliefs, a lot of Greek mythologies, Greek beliefs. You had a lot of um, orators. It, it's kind of like today, right? You know, we go to see people speak, comedians maybe, or, or people um, who uh, have some sort of knowledge that we want to gain. Like people will go see Jordan Peterson, for example, and they'll pay a couple hundred dollars to see him. And it was that way back then. Orators would come and they would teach people how to improve their standing in life. It's kind of like the, you know, uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, that there's, there's nothing new. Um, everything um, is a repeat of, of what happened before. And Paul, of course, was one of those orators who went to speak in Corinth and started a church. But this was a young church and they needed a lot of correction and uh, they needed a lot of help with their beliefs and understanding about things. So we now get to the resurrection here in chapter 15, which I think of all the things that could come out of this chapter, I think we just need to remember that that is the theme. The theme is one of resurrection. So um, I'll go ahead and read. Um, I'm gonna, we're just going to start with the first four verses here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. Somebody asks you, what's the gospel? You can take them right here. This is the gospel. Christ was died. Christ died. He was buried. And he was raised again on the third day. You can start right there. And Paul even says that this is of first importance. This is more important than anything else. This right here. And how important is it? So important that if that didn't happen, right? It's rubbish. Not no good. Yeah, and and that's the point he really makes here. Uh, so I, I was kind of stuck on in accordance with the scriptures, and then he doesn't cite anything. Like today, you know, we want chapter and verse. If you're going to tell me something, 
And you're going to say, well, the Bible says, well, where does it say in the Bible, right? We want to know specifically what you're thinking of and what verse is supporting whatever it is you're about to say. And Paul just says, in accordance with the scriptures. So you kind of have to scramble and look. Uh, I thought of a few verses here uh, or passages. Isaiah 53, 3 through 12 uh, really outlines the uh, crucifixion. It doesn't speak of the resurrection, but it speaks of the crucifixion. Is everyone familiar with that passage? All right, let's read it. Who would like to read Isaiah 53, 3 through 12? Isaiah 53, 3 through 12. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one for whom men hide their faces, he, will he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his words we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had, no, had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall seek his offspring. He shall prolong his day, days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By the knowledge, by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be acquainted righteous. Sorry. Make many to be acquainted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's a pretty clear passage about the crucifixion and Christ bearing the penalty for our sins. Uh, so when Paul says in accordance with the scriptures, he likely could have been referring to this. And, and it's possible that when Paul, maybe he didn't feel the need to cite specific scriptures because he'd already shared these with them when he was there before. So maybe this was just a callback. Remember, because he's doing two things. This first section here is he's saying in accordance with the scriptures. I'm reminding you of what the scriptures have said about Christ. And then he's going to move on to some other proof. 
Um, Hosea 6.2, I'll read this real quickly. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Uh, now, this really seems to be re referring to the Israelites, but uh, New Testament writers have referred to this passage in Hosea. It's not directly about the Messiah, but it relates to the resurrection of Israel, to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Jonah 1.17. Does anyone know what that says? Jesus repeats it in Matthew 12, 40. Why is it Jonah what? Jonah 1, 17 and 2, 1. Do you want to get that, Debbie? I don't have it. I'm looking for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jonah's a hard book to find because it's really short. Of right in there with all the other minor prophets. Do you know 117? Yeah. Almost there. <laughs> <clears throat> one, uh, one, one through 17 or just 17? Just 17 and then two, chapter 2, verse 1. There's just two uh, verses. For the law, 17 is for the law has. Uh, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You're in John. Oh, John. <laughs> Never mind. You guys. You got it. <laughs> Sarah, you want to read it? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Joel I cried, and you heard my voice. And, uh, Christ, that's fine. And, and then Jesus references this verse. For just as Jonah, in Matthew twelve forty, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So I just thought it would be a good kind of reminder, you know, when, when Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures, you know, I, I want to find where the scriptures say that. And Paul likely isn't citing New Testament scripture because hasn't been written yet, or maybe it's partially been written, and maybe not all of it has been circulated yet. I don't know, was Matthew written before Corinthians? I'm looking at you, Rick, because I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. In fact, I, I know it because um, we always quote uh, on the Lord's Supper, you know, this I received from the Lord that the day of Jesus. That's mm -hmm. the first time that's ever like been recorded. Okay. The Gospels come after that, so. Oh, wow. Luke 24, 46, it's just, we won't go there, but it says it is written, but there's no citation, but it, it is referring to the resurrection. Um, other verses, you know, and, and Paul could have very well just been <coughs> pointing to the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Christ, and he might just be making a general statement without the need to cite from Scripture. And as I, as I said, he, he may have already made this case in person, so this is just a reminder in accordance with the Scripture, so he doesn't cite it. Um, verses 5 through 11 now. I was going to ask you, why yeah. did, my Bible has a typeface different, that section. Okay. What, what do you make of that? What, what does it say? You have the CSB, right? HCSB. I'm saying that whole little section, Christ died for sins all the way to verse 8. So okay. Is like it's poetry or like it's a creed or 
No, I mean, I don't know if you guys have a distinction for that section. No, the ESV just says no, the resurrection. Three, three. Oh, three, three. No, nobody else does. Mm-hmm. So where, where's your section between what verses and what's it called? Verses three through eight. Oh, okay. It's just typeset different. It's like, oh, like a I poem, see. You know, Indented. Which is weird. So I don't know if that was like a saying that they had, or, or maybe that's just hmm. the interpreter being super liberal with why they did that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, obviously, we know in, in the Greek that there's no typesetting, it's just all smashed together. No paragraphs or anything. Um, yeah, and it says, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is another word for, or another name for Peter, we know. Cephas means head. That's where we get terms like hydrocephalic, water on the brain. I like another word. Rock. Peter means rock, Petra. Okay, this doesn't. I don't think so. Cephas. Cephas means head. So that's where we get terms. Uh, for our head, for our brain, brain injuries. A cephalopod. Anyway. Um, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and that his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul switches his apologetic. He first refers to scripture about the resurrection and about Christ, and now he's saying, He's making an appeal to people who've actually seen Jesus. They saw the risen Christ. And I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how Paul says that he prayed using his mind. So Paul is now kind of in, engaging and appealing to logic, right? That uh, there's witnesses, who people who saw the risen Christ. Peter saw him, the 12, more than 500 brothers, many of whom at that point in time are still alive. That means you can still go and talk to them, and they can tell you about their experience of seeing Jesus, and there's many of them. James, the prophets, or the, the apostles again, and then to Paul, post-resurrection. So it's not just Paul's delusion. He knows people who witnessed the resurrection. He did himself, uh, and it wasn't a hidden secret. Jesus raised from the dead. And I think that that's fascinating about our faith, is it's not just dependent on the word of one person, of one prophet. And we see, like with Islam, for example, it's dependent on the word of one man, Muhammad. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is dependent on one word, the man Joseph Smith. They have their witnesses, but they were all related to him, and they were all in it with him. So uh, there's not a lot that you can really go with there, but with with our faith, there were many who witnessed it, and it was more than just the word of one man. Any comments there? So Paul's setting the stage here for the belief in the resurrection. Why do you think he's doing that? Because they doubt it. They doubt that the resurrection happened. Um, 
verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not, has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those of us who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. <clears throat> so Paul here is addressing the doubts about the resurrection of the dead and of Christ. So after just going through this passage here, what are the implications if Christ is not raised, if Christ and the dead are not raised? The dead in Christ. There's nothing. Nothing. It's worthless. It means that they didn't get to eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy all the sinful things, that, you know, right? I mean, that's the contrast, right? We're the most to be pitied because everybody else is lavished in all this. Yeah. Well, another way to look at that is, and, and probably something that we don't pick up on because we're probably not doing it all that much, is dying daily mm. or, or being persecuted. Right. And I think that's where Paul's coming from. Not so much I want to go do, eat, and drink, and get drunk, and but I think he's saying, I'm, I'm doing things for the sake of Christ, I'm getting beaten, shipwrecked, all this stuff. If that's not for real, <coughs> then it sucks. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they doubted because they didn't have the same access to information. That... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what their maybe. I mean, like I said before, maybe they were a newer church. They just they needed some additional counsel and additional teaching. Remember, you're you're at. You're in a port city with thousands and thousands of people coming through with different ideas all the time. Just imagine if you're one of a few and you are buffeted by the ideas of worldly culture. Well, we Just like today. Yeah. I mean, imagine if all you heard all day long was stuff that was contrary to Christ and contrary to his teachings. You know, port city. Google, the port of Google, shipping stuff in <laughs> Netflix on the other shore, yeah. importing all this crap. I think if we are not in the war, in fellowship, praying, and doing all those things, like we can be swayed away as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the world starts to become more attractive, where you start to use the reasoning of the world. <clears throat> oh, well, this is okay, or God will forgive you, or this is me. Right? right now, everything is about your own personal identity, how you identify yourself. And we as Christians believe that God is a, we, our identity is in Christ. And God gave us our identity by giving us our gender, our name, you know, and he gave us our identity because he, he has taken on our sins. He has forgiven us. We are new creatures and new creations in Christ. And so we can't go around saying that my identity is this and therefore it permits me to do this thing here that the Bible prohibits. But if that is the idea that is constantly buffeting against you and you don't have any grounding, or you might start having some questions. And so Paul has to send this. This is a long letter. I could, could you imagine writing this out? 
and then wanting a copy of it sent. And Paul didn't write, he didn't have just one copy written. I think he wrote several. He had scribes writing out several copies to go out to different churches. My dad was telling me that Paul, Paul used the internet of his time because he wrote multiple copies and had them sent out. Which is a great apologetic for the reliability of the text, the text of the New Testament that we have today, that we can be confident that what we read here is what was originally written. Because so many copies went out that it's very difficult for there to be major mistakes that could change things. That's a, that's a rabbit trail. So uh, verse 13, if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised. We're done, it's over. Our preaching is in vain. We're wasting our time. Verse 15, we misrepresent God's message. Here's an assumption that's kind of interesting that the assumption, if, if the dead are not raised, but God yet still exists, then the assumption is that we are misrepresenting the message that God has given us. So would you say that the, the Jews are misrepresenting that, right? To, to that extent, right? Because they, they don't believe in Christ and the resurrection. I mean, I talked to a Jews and they don't have the, I mean, the idea of an afterlife is very, mm. you know. Um, well, see, we had, what, the two major parties, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection right. and, and the Sadducees did not, right. which made them very sad, you see. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good point, though. The Jews are just as much an enemy as Christ as right. any unbeliever, and the fact that a lot of the modern church sends money to Israel to help post things is just wrong. We don't treat our enemies with hatred and everything else. We treat them with love and try to bring them to the gospel, but nonetheless, they're not God's special people. They're enemies of the gospel. They're, they're disbelievers just like anybody else. So there's not like two people of God and God that we should be helping them more than you should help a Chinaman, you know. Um, Aren't they still God's special people? I mean, I know people make the argument that they are still God's people, special people, and say, do you say that, no, that's not true? I don't think that's the way Jesus talks in all the Gospels. In fact, he's rebuking them more than anybody. He's saying he's going to turn. Now, they have uh, privileges and stuff they know, they know a lot of truth, and some, and then you know, depending on how you interpret what God's going to do, I think a lot of them, a lot of people, a lot of Jews will come to Christ, but they're not going to come this, to Christ despite unbelief. You know what I mean? They're going to come to Christ because they believe. I mean, their 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 heritage and their their genetic heritage isn't going to save you when it comes. You know, I mean, we have to. That's why we believe what we believe. It, you know, we, we, they have Messianic Jews who believe in Christ, and I have no problem supporting the Christian, you know, Christian Messianic Jews there that are trying to sway the people. But I, I agree. I think that just sending it to Israel as a whole. Well, there, there's a. This is a, an off-topic discussion, but some people conflate Israel with the nation-state called Israel, and I, I, I would make a distinction. Um, and this really depends on what sort of end times theology you happen to believe or embrace. Um, I, I personally am convinced of covenant theology, which, which says that the church is now the extension. The church is Israel in the sense that we are grafted in, as Paul says in Romans. Well, so that's, that's, 
Doesn't he also say, you know, your heritage is not going to save you, Paul? Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, look at mine. Look at my heritage. You know, and <laughs> I was all these things, and yet <clears throat> you can't boast about that. You can't boast about your genetic heritage that it's going to save you. Just like people say, well, I'm ca I was baptized Catholic, so I guess I'm going to heaven. <coughs> It's not, a it's not a birthright. It's not a one who is circumcised inwardly. Those are the true children of Abraham. Those are the ones that are being saved. Yeah. That consists of Jew, Gentile, everybody. There are Jews that will become Christians. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's a true thing. But there's also Muslims who will become Christians. Christians and everything else. The Jews have a special thing in the sense that they have the oracles of God. The scriptures come from the Jewish race. But that's the extent of it. It's not. Um, we're not the favor. So we said we, we stopped here and we misrepresent God's message. If the dead aren't raised, Christ isn't raised. Your faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Uh, verse 18, those who died in Christ have perished. They're done. They're, nothing happens. They die and nothing happens. Uh, we are of all people to be most pitied. <laughs> like they should mock and ridicule. If the dead are not raised, if Christ was not raised, we should be mocked and ridiculed. Just as a thought experiment, what would you like? What would, what would you do if you found out that none of this was true? I mean, you wouldn't have any reason to be restrained, would you? Well, um, I know it's like a, a, a. I know it's a common thing lately to say. Like, I hear a lot of articles right that's you know, like, if I get to heaven, it's just me. It's like I'd be happy, or you know, mm -hmm. even if there is no heaven or hell, I'd be happy here serving God. And I like the idea of that. But that's not like what's promised, and it's kind of. Do you think that's what Paul's saying here? Like, look, if, if the things aren't true, then. You know, I mean, why are we doing this? Right, I agree. I, I think, why would we? I mean. Because we believe. Well, yeah, and, and, but Paul's saying, if Christ is not raised. So, why do you believe? So, I mean, the, the Corinthians are asking this question about the resurrection, and Paul's kind of answering back and saying, well, if, the, if, if there's no resurrection, what are, what are we doing? What, what's anyone doing? Yeah, Mom. But then you also have the um, ability to ask for his peace beyond all understanding. And when you ask that, and I've had this happen, it comes right over you. And so, you know, you have to believe that there is right. Jesus. Yeah, and I'm not saying that oh, the I resurrection know. didn't happen. Oh, I know you're not, but... Things are, things happen that are supernatural, and that's why we believe. Resurrection's definitely supernatural. It is. But if you said, you know, um, I guess the question, if it didn't happen, then why do we do anything, you know? Well, people, people uh, are going through their day every day without any belief in Christ, and they find a reason mm -hmm. to keep going, but... I think it's because they don't think they don't think beyond the moment. Um, if they did, I mean, if they did, they would have to convince themselves every day to take another one, put one foot in front of the other, knowing that everything they did was really to no end. I mean, and, and whereas as Christians, we we have that affirmation that there there is a reason for us to be here. There is a reason, um, a point to everything. 
we don't have to constantly con convince ourselves to, to to keep going or give ourselves a reason to keep doing what we're doing. Does that make sense? So, why do unbelievers claim some sort of morality? They they get it from from their whatever is popular at the moment. That whatever whatever supports the group. Okay. It's it's given it's given to them. It's ever shifting sand. Right, but I think most unbelievers would agree with us. You shouldn't kill. Mm -hmm. That's an easy one. Murder. Murder. We don't believe kill. We believe kill not murder. It's a different right. word. But that depends. You know, I was I would say it's, it depends on which side of the barbed wire fence you're on. You know, if uh, if you have a despot uh, that's ruling the country who wants to kill a certain group, well, that's okay because yeah. he has decided, and that's where you get that's where unbelievers would get. Uh, the, the morality of the group rather than but that person who that despot still thinks that there's some good that's coming from it so I mean even the concept of good I think that create uh, intrinsically God created us um, in his image and I don't think the image is necessarily like the way that we look with hands and feet and all that but there is like a sense of like we want to suggest this to a certain extent and that I think comes from the way that God created us Right. And we were created to worship him, but now instead we choose to worship him. I mean, in our humanity without God, we just want to do whatever we want to. So I think there is some, like, it's almost like our DNA it is there. Yeah. But then, by the grace of God, is that we, he found us and he transformed us, but there are some that reject who he is. But that, that, that desire is still there. Yeah. So we're following a false prophet, if that's the case. We're following a false teacher. If, if he hasn't raised him, he predicted he would he would rise, right? So mm -hmm. we can make him a liar. Yeah. Well, we also yeah. think we're dead in our sins. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. We, there's no hope for us at all if, if, if Christ has not been raised and if the dead are not resurrected. So it's a two-part question. Was Christ raised? Yes. Are the dead resurrected? Yes, the dead in Christ are resurrected. Because then we're not even good Jews at that point. We still believe in the same God. But we're not going to temple. We're yeah. not doing. We're not keeping all the the same ordinances. And you know. But where I'm going here is that even unbelievers have a sense of morality and justice. We disagree with it, but you know, social justice warriors, right? They do believe that they they, they have this sense of justice. It, well, they believe there is a there is a justice out right. there. So where does that come from is yeah. my question. And, and you know, Paul answers this in Romans 2, that the law of God is on the heart. You know, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So, and in Romans chapter 1, Paul says that we see the glory of God. Everybody has a chance. Everybody, at, at least at some level, has seen this, has seen the evidence for God. And as Monica said, it's in our DNA. It's God has put it there for us. But that's not saving faith. But God has given us some sense because he created us in his image of morality. Now, unbelievers twist it, but it's still there. I don't know how we got off on that tangent. <laughs> but um, so in a sense, we have evidence to believe. 
and you could that's called the moral argument for the existence of God uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis would be a book that provides that argument uh, that there is that there is a common morality that God has put into everybody and that that morality points to God um, okay verses 28 20 through 28 but if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for he is the first it's kind of an oddly worded phrase here but it means that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep <clears throat> for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order Christ the first fruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That was confusing. That's right. But, verse 20, Christ was raised from the dead. This is, Paul, this is why Paul grounds his argument in the testimony of witnesses. And then what are the effects here of the resurrection? As displayed here in this, in, in this passage. So verse, verse 20, Christ is the first fruit, the one to be raised. The ESV study Bible note says that the Greek term, and I'm going to probably not say this right, aparche, aparche maybe, refers to a sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop. Therefore, Christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what believers will be like. And we'll get into that next week because that's going to be fun. Verses 21 and 22, death came through Adam. Resurrection came by Christ, which is, of course, a common theme in Paul's letters. Uh, we, we see that in Romans, Romans 5. Uh, each in his own order. Christ comes first, Christ is the first to raise, and then those who belong to him will be raised up after that. Uh, verse 24, the end comes and he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, authority, and power. Verse 25, he will reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And 26, the last enemy is death, and that will be destroyed. So Paul is giving us a hopeful future here that all enemies of God will be destroyed and Christ will rule over all of them. Um, verses 27 through 28, this is confusing. Uh, oh, can we back up for a second? Sure. So the, the, the big argument for the post-mill is that Christ is going to reign until all enemies have been put under his feet. So we're going to Christianize until we get Till Christ comes back. That's that's right. That's the the postmillennial view, and they use this argumentation in this okay. specific verse. Not to get off topic, but I mean it's here, and I want to bless you. Can you give a brief overview for those who don't know what postmillennialism right. is? So they, they believe that we are going. That Christianity is going to continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and it will stamp out any other belief systems, and ultimately we will usher in because of the growing Christendom, we will usher in, all enemies have been stamped out, then Christ comes back. Right? So it's it's a very <coughs> optimistic view of our future. 
Anyone want to respond to that? <laughs> I guess my question with that is... Uh, yeah, I don't know what the question so is. So the question is, 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 I guess, the believing that Christ reign, is reigning now, mm -hmm. right? Is, is Christ reigning currently? Because people, I mean, the premillennials will, will say, well, we want to, when Christ comes back, then he'll reign for a thousand years and he'll physically reign yeah. You know, and that's that. You know, this is one of those things they're talking about. So, do we believe that Christ is actually reigning? So, you're that? talking about one view of eschatology, end times teaching, yes. right? And, and there's several of them, right? You got yes. premillennial, you've got amillennial, which says that there is no thousand years. That it's a, that that's a. Um, we're in the thousand years. Yeah, we're in the thousand years, but it's not a literal thousand years. Uh, there's postmillennial, which will say that we will be moving toward a greater and greater Christianized world. Um, and just to be with end time. Sorry to get off topic, but it's just something yeah. that jumped out and I was well, kind of skipped over it. That's not the direction I thought this discussion would go. <laughs> but that's good. I think people are confused in this section as to why people are dead and they haven't risen. And it's okay. a clarifying look. It, for sure, you know, again, back up just one more paragraph. Death is the great equalizer. Everyone knows they're going to die. Yeah. If if we're going to die and there's no resurrection, well, then there's no gospel because right. that's the hope of man is right. that we don't have to die. That's what was lost in the garden. They lost access to everlasting life. So that's restored. Now they're looking, okay, well, where is it? Because my Christian brother just died and he doesn't have that. And he's saying, well, now, hang on. Christ is an example. We saw him. This is what your brother's going to be like. Just not yet. You know, when, when Christ returns, we'll mm -hmm. that. And I, I think that's all he's trying to say here, not so much of declaring eschatology and stuff, but it's a valid you know, question. I think you you said what post-millennial believes, but um, Christ hasn't returned yet. Right. Now, you know, if you believe that, then you're, what do you call it? Preterist. Preterist, <laughs> right. And you have to make up some idea about we're resurrected bodies right now. I oh. understand it's a spiritual thing, but no, they're dead. Christians die, but not yet, but temporarily like Christ did. Yeah. We will live again. Yeah, I, I don't know what state of the world I, I think of when, when Christ says that narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and wide is the path that leads to destruction. I think that defeats the post-millennial argument right there. I, I think that it's few. Few will find it. And um, I think that God's elect will be fewer than, than the unelect uh, at the end. Um, verses 27 through 28. There's a lot of, uh, it, this is a difficult passage to understand, um, but it seems to be saying that God is, will put all things under Christ's subjection, but that Christ is subject to the Father. Um, When all things are subjected to him, verse 28, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God, who put all things in subjection under him, Christ, that God may be all in all. Does that bother anybody? What do you think that might be implying? I know it, it affects some people who say Christ is always submissive to the Father, yeah. therefore he's going to temporarily be the leader and then he's going to put it all back. I don't see that in this section. I think Christ became the Son of God when he was born. 
God among us, and he did, you know, and now from that point he's been subject to the Father, but ruling and reigning on earth, and eventually when he conquers the last foe, which is death, then he gives it back to God. Okay. But I don't think it implies an eternal submission, and that's why it has to go back. Okay. But again, those are weeds, man, for this class. They are weeds, and well, this, you these know, verses we're coming up on. There's 150 <coughs> interpretations of it out there. Just if anybody wants to know about what being baptized where the dead is and everything else. So, yeah, it's fun. So if you if you want to go into the weeds of eternal functional subordination of the sun, pop that in Google and have some fun. I quit. Uh, yeah, you're it, saying you're so happy. This is a great chapter. <laughs> well, I quit when it. I, I just that is not. Those aren't weeds. I really want to get into. I probably should. I should probably understand that. Uh, verse twenty nine. I'll finish up. We'll finish up here with this um, for, through thirty four. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So I said at the beginning, the context is the resurrection of the dead. So when we're looking at baptism for the dead, what does that mean? Is Paul approving? What 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 could it, you said? There's 150. I wrote three, three views, but I'm sure there's more. What were you thinking of, Rick? Well, I see this as only one possible way. He's saying you're baptized on behalf of Christ who died. Why would you Why would you baptize on somebody that's dead and stayed dead? Okay. He didn't stay dead. He he rose. And so if, if you're just baptizing people on somebody that you know in somebody's name that died, stay dead. It's worthless. Because people were baptized on him. John. I mean, there was others. I mean, not, there's all kinds of, of offshoots that we see that people were baptizing to other gods even. But he's talking about Christian baptism, right? And he's saying, look, if you're baptizing in Jesus and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, why or why would you even do that? Well, it's still. I like that better than what I wrote. So, <laughs> but I agree. If if we're being baptized on because it says on behalf of the dead. So He's if I'm being baptized on behalf of Christ, if Christ is dead, why are we being baptized? It, it flows with this thing because he's trying to show that Christ rose. I right. saw it. Peter saw it. Five hundred saw it. Um, right. And he's saying, right. he definitely rose. And if, and if he didn't rise, why would we baptize in his name? Well, this says baptized for the dead. You're you're you're, you're saying in baptized on behalf of. What version are you reading, Debbie? Uh, this is NIV. Okay. Just the one I pulled up, but uh, baptized, but baptized for the dead. I know that's what uh, that's what the LDS Church that they baptize. Right. But but um, for the dead, different from on behalf of the dead, isn't it? I mean, on behalf of Christ. Well, for the dead would still be Jesus. Right. Why are you okay. baptizing for Jesus? You know, like mm -hmm. on behalf of the same, same word. Looking at the wording. Yeah. Just, mm -hmm. How does your version say it, Rick? It says uh, being baptized for the dead. Okay. 
And again, remember, if they're thinking that Jesus didn't rise. So why are you being baptized for the dead, for a dead man? Another view I saw in this, which is similar to what you said, Rick, but a, a little bit different, is that um, <clears throat> Christian baptism could mean that new converts on are baptized on behalf of their decaying bodies. Paul says, I die every day. He's not literally dying every day, but he's dying to himself. And so when you get baptized on behalf of the dead, I'm being baptized on behalf of my dead body, my decaying body that will, because of entropy, is going to go into the dust of the earth at some point. And I'm going to be raised new. So I'm being baptized, this dead body, into Christ. Uh, our Latter-day Saint friends across the street uh, use this verse to justify their teaching that uh, you can baptize by proxy for those who died before who did not get a chance or who died before being baptized. So Great Aunt May, who never got a chance to hear the gospel or she rejected the gospel, you could stand in place of Great Aunt May and get baptized on behalf and for the LDS teaching, right? And that she, in the afterlife, will have an opportunity to receive these teachings and accept the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then she will be allowed to enter into the celestial kingdom. So that's their, their uh, and they have, I, I, I believe that this practice they need, because otherwise they can't answer why the truth was not, the true gospel was not on earth from somewhere around 90 AD to 1828, 29. I don't so, understand that though with the LDS though, because only a few have outer, get outer darkness, only like the worst of the worst. But, right? Everybody but then gets, you want celestial kingdom. Right, so they're baptizing them into the, into the, better, yes. the better heaven? Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. But you have to you have to have an answer what about those people who didn't get a chance to hear the fullness of the gospel that was restored through the prophet joseph smith well you know there's 1800 1700 years of time that passed between the death of the last apostles to the coming of joseph smith so what about all those people that's why they're really into genealogy because they do their genealogies and then they go to the temple and they perform these baptisms on behalf of the people and their families to give because they believe that that's going to give them a second chance. I think that, as we've seen here, I think that's a complete and total mis misinterpretation of, of what this verse says. Can I, can I uh, read starting in verse 28 if I add some of my own words and you guys can follow along and see what you think? Sure, go ahead. Otherwise, what will we do who are being baptized for Jesus who's dead? If Jesus is dead and didn't raise, then why are people being baptized for him? Why are people in danger every hour for his name? You know, if he didn't, if he died and didn't rise again, why were we suffering for his name? That I have Christ Jesus our Lord, and I die every day because he's alive. You know, like that's the that's to me the flow. And so I, I, I kind of want to reiterate because I think it makes this what's important. Did you write that? Saltish version. I just added the, the name. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I want that. International version. That's the message. <laughs> I'm not. You no, know, it's not a hell of a time, but to me, to me, it's a hell of a time. I can't see it any other way. I mean, yeah. Right, right. So those those who are baptized for the dead, um, they're 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 reading it as they're reading it differently than the LDS Church is reading it differently. Than what you yeah. 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 I I can see that. 
Uh, yeah, and you know, I think, uh, well, I think Paul's using sarcasm here too. It's a lot of sarcasm, uh, and he does that um, quite often. But he's setting up the stage for talking about the resurrection and what the resurrection body is going to be like. And uh, so that's why I think that this is right. I, I think, Rick, I think you're right on. That's probably the best uh, explanation of, of this very difficult verse that I've heard. Um, I thought I had, what I had was decent, but that's, a, that's better. If you're being baptized on behalf of the dead, Christ, why are you even doing it? And that's the other question. That's the rhetorical question. Why are you even getting baptized then? But God's not dead. He's surely alive. He's <laughs> Verses 30 through 34. Paul is already dead. We're already dead. We have died to this world. We are to live to Christ. This, this supports the idea that baptism on behalf of an already living yet dead and decaying body. So if, if we take that view, or we can say that baptism is on behalf of Christ, who is not dead, but he is surely alive. So they wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning, everybody. So to summarize here, it is of first importance that Christ died, was buried, raised, and appeared to many witnesses. Paul supports that by going back to Scripture, appealing to Scripture, and he supports that by appealing to the many witnesses, who many of whom were alive at that time. Without the resurrection, we're wasting our, our hope, we're wasting our time, we are to be pitied above all others, and we have absolutely no hope. But the resurrection gives us hope. Christ goes before us, we will come after him. We are dead to Christ and risk-taking activities for the sake of the gospel would be done in vain if there's no, if there's no resurrection. Amen? Amen. All right. I'll close this out. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Lord, for being our resurrection, for going before us, for being the first fruits, for helping us to believe in you and Lord, I pray that as the world tries to change our mind and uh, tries to point us away from you, that we would remember, Lord, that you rose again, that you are our first fruit, and that we can hold on to this belief and trust it so that we will not, and, and we do not believe in vain. But Lord, fortify us and strengthen us our hearts, souls, and minds, Lord, as we go on through our through our lives, knowing that you raised from the dead. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother.